You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 11th of June 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. I think that uh, very quickly I'll know whether or not something good is going to happen. I think I'll know pretty quickly whether or not, in my opinion, something positive will happen. Yes, we heard you the first time. As Singapore turns in for the night, the world holds its breath. What will happen when Donald Trump meets Kim Jong-un? My guests, Daniela Pelled and James Rogers, will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including Italy's new coalition makes a statement of a new hard line on boat-borne migrants, the Gulf states pass round the hat to shore up Jordan, and... As Canadians, we're polite, we're reasonable, but we also will not be pushed around which is not going to stop Donald Trump from trying. But who was the greatest ever political insulter? That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. So, welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Daniela Pellet and James Rogers. Welcome both. And assuming an absence of last-minute flounces, roughly eight hours from now at the Capella Hotel on Sentos Island in Singapore, Kim Jong-un will exchange a handshake with Donald Trump. But what else can we expect from this summit between the impulsive tantrum thrower who has sowed diplomatic and strategic chaos throughout the world with his bellicose disregard for treaties and conventions and the chairman of the Workers' Party of Korea? Uh, Daniela, is is this any more than a photo opportunity, really? Is it, isn't that all both men want? They want to be able to say they met the other one. Yeah, that's what it is. And I think we should stop pretending that it's anything apart from that. I think we uh, we seem to have fallen into the trap of trying to uh, detect some kind of rationality and some kind of purpose in what Donald Trump is doing, thinking, well, maybe he could do this or maybe he could do the other. But this is just the opposite of anything constructive. He's given away this prize of, of meeting and legitimising the North Korean leader for absolutely nothing, uh, which is not a diplomatic strategy, but a, like a diplomatic tick. I mean, he did the same thing by moving uh, the American embassy to Jerusalem, which is a, a prized pearl of the pre- peace process, but which he, the gesture he made for absolutely no return. And, and, and this is it. This is the same thing happening over again. Uh, the North Koreans are delighted. They've already uh, won quite a significant victory by uh, presenting their chairman as uh, as a world statesman. Uh, when it comes to behind-the-scenes dealings and meetings, I mean, there is some of that going on, but the actual the framework, the network of building some kind of sensitive agreement like this is the opposite of Trump's modus operandi. It takes time and there's failures along the way. One can't imagine, considering his recent behaviour at G7, can't imagine that his approach will be any different here. James, is it the case, because it's certainly how it seems to me that this is a, certainly from the North Koreans' point of view, they can't lose here, can they? Whereas the United States can be, I guess, seen to lose, but it's it's hard to believe that Donald Trump really cares all that much. No, I think it's true. I mean, and I, and I think what Daniela says is true. I mean, the North Koreans, it is a success getting just this far because um, they can't lose both on the international stage they're being taken seriously and clearly domestically they can play this as having been uh, showing that they're being taken very seriously. I note that um, North Korean TV has apparently taken the unusual step of reporting this meeting before it happens. Normally the leader's activities only reported after the fact. So obviously if 
Donald Trump does decide he doesn't fancy the meeting after all, then that's going to be a bit of a, a difficult one to sell on the news tomorrow. Um, that said, I mean, let's not forget that I think, you know, earlier this year, some very serious commentators were concerned about a real military confrontation between these two. So even if this is not going to deliver a long and lasting agreement, then it's presumably to be welcomed in comparison to growing military tension. Well, on the subject of North Korean media, that, that some of that has been interesting, some of the language it has used, because obviously any language that North Korea uses is is uh, illustrative of the desires and wishes of the uh, the government. Uh, Rodong Sinmun, the usually extremely sort of angry and choleric uh, North Korean newspaper, has made a reference to what, and the phrase was, the denuclearization of the Korean peninsula and other issues of mutual concern as required by the changed era, when it was talking about uh, what might be discussed at this summit. That phrase, the changed era, might that actually be significant? The changed era, meaning they actually have a sympathetic era in the White House who has not got the political nows to realise that he's giving away uh, his most valuable gestures for free. There's no real changed era. What the changed era, we look at Trump and and Iran, his attitude towards an Iran agreement, which might not have been perfect, but was uh, internationally supported, took years of of negotiating, uh, was very, very precisely detailed. And that wasn't good enough for him. And now the American position is saying there's going to be absolute and complete denuclearization, absolutely no nuclear capability. It's it's just laughably easy for that to be derailed. But... uh, Similarly, you know, there's no. This is a win for the North Koreans, um, and the uh, Americans can. I mean, the, the Trump supporters can say, "Well, we got this far. Well, we tried. Well, this presents him in a statesman, uh, statesman-like uh, manner." There isn't. I don't see. A, I don't see a new era. I don't think the new. If there is a new era, it's no safer than the old, rather scary era where we at least knew where we stood. Uh, James, Donald Trump will, of course, present this as a colossal personal triumph, regardless of what actually happens. Uh, But is there anything we can think of that would count as a genuine actual win for the United States and therefore one still assumes to hope uh, as a corollary the the rest of the world? I think some sort of evidence, and I'm not exactly sure what that would be, but some sort of evidence that North Korea was serious in continuing this. I mean, going back to the new era thing, one wonders, you know, uh, the North Korea has always looked rather nervously at the fate of other Marxist-Leninist regimes, if you can call it that. I mean, North Korea has been rather in a category of its own, of course. It, it is running out of a peer group in that respect. It is indeed. It is also, uh, you know, it has had serious problems feeding its own people within recent memory. It has not got unlimited resources. Uh, The Singapore uh, government are paying for Mr Kim's accommodation while he's there, apparently. So this is not a wealthy regime is the point that I'm making. And so they may be saying this is a new era where we need to focus our objectives and maybe if we can get a decent deal, we can think about economic reform rather than spending so much of our budget on defence. I mean, Daniela, are there any causes for optimism here? I'm thinking very hard. <laughs> uh, I mean, the previous seismic shifts in, you know, in geopolitics seem to herald a, another new era. The fall of the Soviet Union was the cause for talks between America and North Korea. And that seemed to start a process and that dipped and, and, and wavered and agreements were brokered and then broken. And that process has continued until fairly recently when North Korea is in serious, serious trouble. And that is apocalyptic trouble. Another state would not be able to uh, to cope with, but they are unaccountable to the to their people, to put it mildly. They will broker agreements. I think in 2012, Barack Obama 
um, agreed to help them out a bit because the famine there was just getting too uh, too severe even for, for them to, to fudge over. So they can be pragmatic, but uh, a new era is uh, an excessive description. And if it is a new era, I don't think it's a very encouraging one. Okay, well, we we will doubtless be talking about this in greater detail uh, once the meeting has actually occurred, which is now about... I'm trying to do the maths. It's about eight hours away. A little less than eight hours from now, they will literally be shaking hands. Uh, But let's move along slightly, because one of the few aspects of his recent visit to the G7 summit in Quebec that President Donald Trump seemed to enjoy was his meeting with Italy's new Prime Minister, Giuseppe Conte. If there were any doubts about what it is Trump likes about Italy's new populist coalition, they have been dispelled. Italy has refused to take in a rescue ship bearing migrants fished from the Mediterranean. 629 people, among them 123 unaccompanied minors and several pregnant women are aboard the Aquarius. Most are from Nigeria, Ghana, Eritrea and Sudan. Italy's new interior minister, Matteo Salvini, declared that Italy is done bending over backwards and obeying. Um, James Spain's new government uh, says they'll take the boat in. That is news that has broken in the last couple of hours. Mm. So if if we look at this affair from the perspective of... um, Italy's new government. This is a, a fairly unequivocal victory for them, isn't it? Well, it is. It's also it's also a victory in a in a contest which they had to try to win. I mean, after all, if you think of the way the new coalition government has come together, and particularly that Mr. Salvini, the Interior Minister, is the League of the Far Right. Nor um, uh, League Party, uh, then we really had no choice but to try to take a move like this. This is what he's ran for election on. He's saying we're going to stop this happening. So this is really his first test. He had no choice but to try to do it. And yes, certainly from that point of view, it is a victory. That said... Uh, Spain's uh, agreeing to take this is only a short-term solution, not a longer-term one, and it's going to put the ball for resolving the the migrant issue right back um, at the heart of the EU, presumably, if they're going to try to share out the burden more equally, which is not what current law provides for, which, of course, says that people must claim asylum in the first country which they come to. Uh, Daniela, leaving aside Matteo Salvini's motivations, which I suspect are other than pure-hearted humanitarian instinct... uh, Does Italy, or indeed any country, have a case for being able to say at any point, that's it, we've taken enough? Italy has been saying for some years through previous governments that they are, as of geographical inevitability, bearing an undue burden of this. More than 13,000 arrivals this year, as of June the 6th, which is 34%, I think I'm right in saying, of the total who have arrived in Europe. Is it a fair enough thing for any country to do just to say that's it? Well, I think in common with many other populist but also very winning arguments, they do have a point. There is, an, uh, there is a, a, an element of truth in it, which is that it is unfair and unreasonable for countries on the periphery of Europe or countries on the trail, which migrants or refugees arrive on, to, to bear the, the brunt of it. I mean, this is not the way to go about it. This refusal, which was, by the way, in my opinion, a win-win, because had Europe tried to impose a solution mm-hmm. on him, it would have played exactly to the sort of populist, anti-European uh, uh, narrative. The only solution is something which is we're epically failing to do, which is to think sensibly about some uh, reasonable and practical solutions to migration and refugee and asylum seekers. 
um, the fact that Spain is stepping in is another way using this as, as a political football. Again, they're scoring points. The fact that other mayors in Italy stepped in and said, "We yeah. will take them. We will take them." Again, you know that we're not looking at the at the at the problems, and we're not looking at the challenges, and we're not also looking at the inevitability and the positive aspects of of, of migration. Uh, we're not we're really not examining it in any kind of useful way. I, I don't think internationally, we need to tra- change the way we look at it before we can think about any kind of solution or any kind of fair resolution then is solutions that are fair to people who are moving around the world and people whose countries are being burdened by having to welcome or having to tolerate uh, people from uh, other countries. This is inevitable and it's not really going too well. Uh, James, as a a corollary of that, I guess, and again, leaving aside uh, Matteo Salvini's motivations, which I think we can probably agree uh, are what they are, is there anything to his argument that the rescue ships such as the Aquarius are effectively, uh, if not actively, working with the people traffickers who are bringing these people across the Mediterranean? Yeah, and this is quite a frequent allegation, isn't it, that it's sort of creating a a, a reassurance for people trying. I mean, from my own personal experience, it's not something that I've sort of researched into in great deal. I have in, in my time as a correspondent worked in a lot of war zones where people were seeking to leave, where there were refugees seeking to leave. And I think often for those of us who live or have only ever lived in very safe countries, I don't think they quite understand that most people do not want to leave their homes and it really is a last resort for a lot of people. Uh, and if you think about the peril to which one is exposing oneself for taking off on these sort of leaky, shaky boats, yes, there may be a prospect of rescue and maybe uh, it is, you know, there have been allegations that even there is some sort of informal coordination and saying, you know, we'll be setting off if you want to come and save us. But I think, you know, that's these probably are not, it's not really the main part of the problem. I think Daniela is right to say that we need to look at this in a, in a sense of greater global cooperation. Unfortunately, we live in an age when, uh, when global organisations are not working as well as they might. I, I mean, this is where we get to the point where I'm not sure myself what I think about it. I, I am one of those soppy liberal Australians who feel somewhat awkward about the, the hard line that my own homeland has taken on this, uh, Daniela. But the trouble is, when you look at the numbers since Australia instituted the hard line, from that point of view, it works. The boats have stopped coming, which means people have stopped drowning. Uh, 300 boats arrived in Australia in 2013. There's been one in five years since, none in the last four. And whatever other criticisms I think can be rightly made uh, of the regime imposed since, there are hundreds, potentially, people who are alive now who otherwise would not not be. Well, are they alive? Or perhaps they died in other ways. We've got no way of Indeed knowing. So. It, it's it's a... It's a, it's a um uh, you know, it's a plaster on a cut. You know, it's a short-term solution. It's not part of any greater strategy. I understand that Australia does uh, accept migrants. Um, but again, saying, OK, well, we're not going to allow people to come by sea or if we're not going to allow rescue boats. It's the same sort of argument as saying we're not going to offer free treatment on the NHS to people who have cancer who, if they smoke or if they're obese or if they've take, uh, taken other lifestyle choices uh, that have put them in this situation. People don't, uh, as James says, people don't choose to take these perilous journeys for, for on, on a whim. Uh, and we have to take that seriously and think about the root causes and try and address them rather than say, OK, well, we're going to stop the boats and that will sort it out. 
Uh, James, what does happen, though, if, and it's not impossible if the Australian experience is reflected in Europe, mm. though I understand that the geographical scenario is different. Australia has no land borders uh, with anywhere anywhere else, so there's no real alternative mm. routes. But if Italy takes this, this hard line and it does result in a noticeable drop-off in boats leaving Africa in the first place, is that kind of going to prove their point? Well, I mean, I think it depends, as Daniela says, on what happened to those people. I mean, if the people who might otherwise have taken the boat, you know, maybe arguably more of them will will perish where they are in uh, in terrible conditions in Libya or have to return, retrace their steps, even in the worst case, you know, across deserts and through conflict zones. Um, the purpose in the in the short term, yes, is to stop people drowning, and arguably that might deliver it. But I think you know, in the longer term, there does need to be a more serious look at things, which probably involves uh, some sort of major aid program to the conflict areas. Who's going to take that on in today's world? I'm not entirely sure. No, that would be a tough sell, um, Daniela. Just finally, we we did talk at the top about how uh, the boat, the Aquarius, will be taken in by Spain. Is that a big domestic political risk for Spain's extremely new and? uncertain government well but they're doing what they kind of said on the tin i mean this is not uh, just as the, the italians are are being populist about this i don't think at this stage uh um it will do them any harm i mean gosh you know if somebody off the boat then turns out to be a, a delinquent who stabs somebody i'm sure that mm. right-wing tabloid press can can make something about it you know make something out of it but that, that's the issue about asylum and, and migration is that it's being used as uh, as a kind of cipher, you know, you can we we like the good migrants. Even the right wing will say, yeah, this Syrian refugee is okay because she went to Cambridge. Yeah, this Afghan guy is all right because he saved someone life. You know, this uh, this this guy is great because he he rushed to the top of a building and saved a small girl who was dangling in peril. Yeah, it's not black and white in that sense. And so yeah, you can make a canny political decision and be quite populist by saying, oh, we're going to show this humanitarian side to our nature because this is the narrative that countries like to have about themselves and take in this boatload of poor, forlorn migrants. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Daniela Pellet and James Rogers. Coming up next, a bailout for Jordan. You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Daniela Pellet and James Rogers. It appears that it was not just Western policymakers who regarded recent tumult in Jordan with a measure of nervousness. The whole point of Jordan being basically that it's the Middle Eastern country nobody has to worry about. Other Middle Eastern countries also seem to have been spooked. Saudi Arabia, Kuwait and the United Arab Emirates have dipped into their fathomless reserves of cash in order to assemble an aid package to Jordan worth two and a half billion US dollars. The pledge follows a promise by new Prime Minister Omar al-Razaz to bin the new tax proposals which prompted recent protests. Um, Daniela, $2.5 billion is a lot of money, possibly even to Saudi Arabia, Kuwait and the UAE. Is is Jordan's stability worth $2.5 billion to them? Well, I think, it, I think it definitely is, and not just to them. As you say, it's the country that, well, if not people don't have to worry about, but people believe it's part of the, the, the setup that this will be an oasis of stability considering its neighbours as well uh, it's very very important for, for Jordan to remain uh, remain stable not least because it has taken I think one and a half million uh, Syrian refugees in I mean, in terms of per capita you know the, the size of its population I think that's the second largest amount and that puts an immense immense strain on, on any country especially a country that's made up largely of, of refugees themselves um, I may be proved completely wrong but I'm not 
overly concerned at the moment. I think people, um, with good reason, they talk about how fragile perhaps uh, stability is in in Jordan and um, the awful possibilities should it collapse and the threats from um, Islamic extremists and the, and the knock-on effect. But it's done quite well uh, to weather the influx of refugees and other disturbances. I was there in, in 2013 looking at how the, uh, the Arab Spring had affected um, politics there and, and internal criticism. And people were happy to talk out, talk quite um, scathingly about the government and even about the Queen. But the monarchy, the, the king himself uh, and his immediate blood family, I think, remained off limits. And it's quite useful to have a political scapegoat in the form of the government and the king basically sacked the government and said, OK, we need new people, which is going to be a popular move. Uh, it's not particularly democratic, but it's worked thus far. I mean, on that subject, James, it, it was one of the uh, quirks of the Arab Spring that all the governments it toppled were republics. Some of the monarchies mm. had a bit of a wobble, but not that much of one, and they all they all remained. Is is this basically the the Arab monarchs club getting together to help each other out? Well, I th- there's, there's possibly an element of that. I mean, I, I think um, I think too that if you think about what's going on in Saudi Arabia, you know, Saudi Arabia has got involvement in Yemen. It's got involvement, you know, in, in a sense in Syria. Just at the same time as uh, under the Crown Prince, it's embarking on a very ambitious future reform programme with its strategy 2030. So I think there's a sense here that if stability in Jordan can be achieved at the price of, you know, a very generous financial donation, then it's probably money well spent in order to have this as a part of the region, uh, which these, you know, three powerful countries don't, and and indeed wealthy countries, don't need to worry about. Um, What happens longer term is another matter, of course, because, you know, these reforms were part of... uh, Part of ref- part of a package agreed with the IMF, and they presumably they, they can't just keep looking to wealthy countries for subsidies in order to put this off forever. But it has led, in this case, to you know the the, the edge of of, a, of unrest and instability, and to the dismissal of the government. I mean, Daniela, just to return to that thing you were saying about a, a, a lack of any uh, resistance to or resentment of uh, the monarchy in Jordan. One of our correspondents we spoke to during the protests made the point that the protests actually were weren't all that big. It was just a few thousand people, but it was a few thousand angry middle class people uh, in the streets of Amman. And you know, and our correspondent suggested that that fact might have been what really rattled them. Is there any imaginable threat whatsoever to the, the Jordanian throne? Well, I would say something a bit mean about it enlivening the, the dullness of life in Amman, because <laughs> stability also brings... I mean, uh, Amman, Amman is a nice city to visit, but it is also basically the Canberra of the Middle East. Well, you said that, and you're in Australia. <laughs> um, it's quite a nice well, Roman amphitheatre. There is quite a nice Roman amphitheatre, mm. that is true. And, and apart from that? Um, <laughs> no, I think people do sit up and pay attention when middle-class people take to the streets, but also the way that the that the um, protests were received is also quite significant because there was no violence, there was no police violence or brutality and it was all done in a fairly respectful way and there was action taken by the mm. king immediately afterwards. Um, the The payout is, you know, is a short-term solution but there are an awful lot of schemes from Western governments and from the EU yeah. that support uh, economic uh, projects in, in Jordan, especially um, regarding Syrians and trying to 
absorb Syrian refugees into the economy. I think that there's a there's a quite a long and complex, long term complex web of of arrangements and agreements to trying to keep this, uh, to keep the country propped up. As I said, I may be proved wrong, but I think the storm is is weatherable. Okay. Well, finally tonight, uh, circa 1971, US President Richard Nixon referred to the Canadian Prime Minister of the time as a son of a bitch and an asshole. The Canadian Prime Minister in question was Pierre Trudeau, who responded that he had been called worse things by better people. If insouciance is a heritable quality, then it is unlikely that Pierre Pierre Trudeau's son, say that five times quickly, Justin Trudeau, has lost much sleep over being described by Richard Nixon's successor in several respects, Donald Trump, as dishonest uh, and weak. Um, Donald Trump is, of course, a very effective uh, political insulter, if not necessarily a terribly graceful or, or subtle one. One thinks of, you know, his crooked Hillary and low-energy Jeb. Actually, I quite like that one. Um, <laughs> but but I, I, did, I did want to ask you both about your, your favourite political insults. I, I wish to get the ball rolling with one which has just stuck in my head for years from the, I think it's about mid-70s Australia, a senator, then, uh, then Senator Vince Gare, describing the then leader of the opposition, Bill Snedden, as a lightweight who couldn't go too rounds with a revolving door, um, which I think is an excellent description uh, of, of somebody's haplessness. James, do you have a particular favourite? Well, I just, if I may, Andrew, just before we come to that, I'm worried if we were having this conversation in 24 hours' time, then uh, <laughs> we might have a new one, given the meeting that's about to take place in Singapore. And I also, I was thinking too about the fate of the translators. I mean, can you imagine what, you know, Mr Trump's used to saying, you're fired. Uh, and I don't suppose, Mr Kim, while he may speak a bit of English, I don't suppose Mr Trump speaks any Korean. And I don't know what I the fate... I would be surprised. Well, indeed. I, and I don't know what the fate of Mr. Kim's translator might be were he to get it wrong. But anyway, moving on from that. So as I say, we may have an, an, another world champion in 24 hours' time if that meeting should leak. But I, I think, I, I just think of recent events in this country and also internationally. It was it's only a few years since uh, the British Foreign Secretary... Uh, um, Boris Johnson gave the opinion he wouldn't visit New York because of the very real risk of, of meeting Donald Trump. And I think it's a measure of his political transition and perhaps uh, Mr Trump's uh, increase in political stature that only last week he was apparently uh, recorded secretly uh, singing his praises and saying that the uh, British negotiations with the European Union might be going rather better were Mr Trump in charge. I think it's certainly true to say they would be going differently. Daniela, do you have any particular favourites? Well, I like uh, I like the British insult, the British Political insult, I have to say. I think we do we do quite a good uh, line in understated uh, passive aggression. I mean, even Theresa <laughs> Theresa May's response to the G7 summit was something like, "I don't think his comments were particularly helpful," or something like that. Uh, obviously, the master of all is Churchill. Uh, he was very very fond of the uh, rousing political and very cutting insult. I like I like her. Uh, what well, he said about Attlee, a modest man with much to be modest about. <clears throat> yeah, well, the thing is that you're, you're quite right about the, the English talent for, for passive aggression is, is one of your, your most endearing qualities as, as a people. And the thing is, like, the Australian political, or the Australian lexicon of political insult, which I have been revising this afternoon, contains very little of that. It is a reminder of what a plain-speaking folk uh, we are. And it, it would be incomplete uh, for us not to refer to the lexicon of our, our, our great prime. Minister Paul Keating, who was a great Prime Minister as well as a great abuser. There's many to choose from. It's not his most subtle characterisation of an opponent, but he spoke of the West Australian politician of Wilson Tuckey, and this was on the floor of the Parliament. Um, Keating said to Tuckey, you boxhead, you wouldn't know, you're flat out counting past ten, you stupid foul-mouthed crub. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, it's, it's, it's lovely, really. There's a there's a certain there's a cadence to it. There's a rhythm to poetry to, 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 to yeah. Keating's abuse. Yeah. It was it was the it was the, the yeah it was the, the the barely repressed Irish poet in him. I think sort of coming to the fore <laughs> at moments like that. I think also we we should reach out to um, uh, America again and remind ourselves of, of Lyndon Johnson uh, just before we finish. And it's probably one of the few Lyndon Johnson insults that we can actually broadcast. But his famous characterization uh, of Gerald Ford, uh, the eventual president, uh, of whom Johnson once said, he's a nice guy, but he played too much football with his helmet off. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, uh, something that will never be said about either of my guests tonight, uh, Daniela Pellet and James Rogers, thank you both for joining us. The show was produced by Daniel Bates, researched by Daphne Carnesis and Lamichi Akamoto. Our studio manager was Christy Evans. Music next at 1900 Hours. It's The Culture Show with Robert Bound, and there's more on the day's main stories on The Daily at 2200. I'll be your host for that as well. Midori House returns tomorrow, 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. Thank you.